Welcome to Aston Villa Through the Years with Colin Abbott talking about his new book, Serbian. Mr. Colin Abbott, welcome to uh, a football book podcast, mate. Author of the week, no less than. Thank you very much. And when I say author of the week, of course, I mean author of the month. But Andy has moved and it's been a couple of months since we've done the last uh, hour. And it is now our football book podcast. It's rather a mouthful, but I did want to get you on as author of the month because I'm a big fan of yours. When I first or when we first hooked up, it was over your Aston Villa, the first 150 years with John Farrelly and John Russell. Absolute coffee table, magnificent book. We're not going to talk about that because we have done a podcast already about that. We will again reconvene in, I think it's 2024, isn't it? When the second part of that comes out. You've done another wonderful, the big Aston Villa book of the 70s. Again, with Legends Publishing, David Lane, an absolute legend. and the latest book that you're working on is a very similar book. It's the big Aston Villa book, but it's not the 70s. It's the 80s. We've just referenced uh, Dennis Mortimer's book, The Full Morty, which Dennis has done the foreword of your book. So let's just talk about, firstly, the 80s, because it was a great decade for Villa, or the first part of it was a great decade for Villa. And then we'll talk about your Barton's Army book as well, sir. No problem at all, Paul. So you fire away. How long has it taken? I mean, I know you and your research is second to none and it is a labour of love. So how long has it taken you? And when did you start doing this concept? Because you've had it on the back burner for some time, haven't you? We have. We had to to keep shelving it to go on to other projects, unfortunately. Um, When the 70s come out, we had a book launch at Villa Park in November 16. But as soon as Dave... Uh, formatted the book and it was and it was sort of signed off and went to the printers. I actually started on the 80s book back then, yeah. and I started doing match reports because bearing in mind there's about 500 to do over the course of a season. Uh, I started I started in earnest once the 70s went to print, so I probably started that about September October 16, and it's it's finally there six years down the line, but. I've got to say, we actually we put that one on the back burner twice. Once to do the the one that you mentioned, the 150 years, and then once that had been completed, we came back to the 80s book. But then, what with all the hype of the the celebrations for the 40th anniversary of the the lads winning the European Cup, I wanted to do something, and Dave Lane come up with this fantastic concept. So we got Barton's army out the way and then we restarted for the third time with the 80s. And it is only just this week being, as I would say, signed off. It's it's remaining open till Sunday for fans to get the names in. And then first thing Monday or Tuesday, it's off to be printed. And that's the that's the latest project. And it's 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 reached completion. And it's uh, I was pleased with the 70s one. But this one, it it knocked spots off it simply because of what we achieved. Yeah. We started the season with a bang, winning the title. We'd been we'd been threatening, 
we'd been threatening in, in 76 to 7. I actually think, and, and I've spoken to Dennis Mortimer about this, I, I I actually thought we were going to win the treble, you know. Yeah, Dennis was was thinking along those same lines, and he was he was quite. I'm reading Dennis's book at the moment. He was quite disappointed when Villa didn't win the treble because they could have, and they were a gnat's whisker, wasn't they? Away from it. Yeah, well, we had when you consider we had. I think it was 14 cup matches that season. That's yeah. a third. That's a third of what the the league was back in the day when it was 42 games. Yes, we had. Every time the Villa turned up at the baseball ground, you could guarantee there was injuries. Chris Nicholl Chris Nickel was injured. Andy Gray was injured. Frank Carradus was injured. Chris Nicholl only played in the cup final because they strapped his foot up that tight. He said it was like when he hit that ball from 35 yards out, he said it was like hitting it with an iron, yeah. you know, playing golf. Mm. That ball was going nowhere other than in the net. Yeah. And... Uh, those injuries cost us the. I think we finished six points behind Liverpool that season when we finished fourth. Yeah, you did. There wasn't a lot in it, and you you think of the games that we could have won, but that was a. I, I suppose that was like a prelude to what was on the horizon. Saunders was tweaking here and there. You know, it's everybody goes on about the final piece of the jigsaw. Don't mention the the other ten pieces of the jigsaw prior, but. But I can see his analogy in that. And the players, the players all said that from the Leeds game onwards, I was I was at a gig in the week there, Jimmy Rimmer. He said he knew it was on the boil. Dennis Dennis knew that they were going to do it from the league from the very first league game at Leeds. Mm. Uh, so this eighties book, to start the season, to start the decade, I should say, sorry, with a with winning the title, and when you think about it, eighty nine to ninety we were so so close to winning that again yeah so there was a there was a downside through the middle of the decade we never we never got close really to the to what we achieved in that first year the second season you know we finished 11th that would yeah. that was pretty rough bearing in mind Ipswich town who they pushed us all the way in 80 to 81 they actually finished runners up in eighty one to two. Yeah, they did now, it twice, didn't they? Yeah. That's consistency. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, like I say, we 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 fell away to eleventh, but I defy any team to say that they 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 didn't they wouldn't finish eleventh if they got the European Cup in their hands. It was a no brainer, wasn't it? Absolutely, and, and an unbelievable situation happened in February that year when Ron Saunders resigned, walked out, then went to Birmingham City. Tony well, Barton took over. Villa were fifteenth at the time and did end yeah. up eleventh. So there was a little bit of progression. Tony didn't really tinker much with the team. He had that many great professionals. Tony, Tony didn't need to, Paul. Absolutely. Tony Absolutely. didn't need to because with with doing this book and doing the Barton's Army book. I had a, I was really fortunate to get close to Tony Barton's family, be it Chris and Gary's sons or Tony's widow Rosina, yeah. and where everybody assumed, I certainly assumed that Tony Barton was Ron Saunders' assistant manager. Yeah, chief scout, wasn't he? It, well, he came in as a scout, mm-hmm. but. His actual title, believe it or not, was manager's assistant. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you what, assistant manager and manager's assistant, it's 
it's like the difference between night and day. Right, okay. But you said Tony didn't, you know, Tony didn't tinker with anything. Tony didn't need to. He knew exactly what he had there because, and again, I only found out through the research from Ron Saunders coming in at Villa Park. Well, Keith, Lin- Keith Leonard got injured early 75 in a, as it happens, in an injury against Jimmy Rimmer. Yeah. The Villa needed to replace Keith Leonard. They needed a forward. Tony Barton, who was at Portsmouth at the time, had earmarked a young Scottish lad no one had heard of called Andy Gray. Yeah. He was in the employer Portsmouth. Portsmouth didn't want him because he wasn't a name to put bums on seats. Tony got in touch with Ron Saunders, who they'd, they'd played together at Fratton Park. Tony, uh, Ron was sold on the idea, got Andy Gray in, and as a result of that, he offered Tony the job of chief scout. Yeah. Tony, Tony relocated with his family up to Birmingham from Portsmouth. His first signing was the, the first person Tony actually recommended to Ron was Dennis Mortimer, believe it or not. Right. And every single player, and, and I have this on good authority, I've spoke to, I actually spoke to Tony's personal assistant, Tony Barton's personal assistant, just to get clarity on it. Every single player that came in from Dennis Mortimer all the way through to when Tony Barton was actually sacked, the only, the only player that came through the door where Tony had nothing to do with it was actually David Geddes. Yeah. You think of all the other players that came in, you've got your Kenny Swains and your Des Bremners and your, your Peter Withers and your Tony Morleys, Ken McNaught, Tony Barton. Tony Barton was the with the eyes that found those. You're it's incredible. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on because I've been to quite a few of the quite a few of the events um, commemorating Villa's successes of winning both the league and then the European Cup. And to a man, every player has sung the praises of Tony Barton. And when Andy yeah. Blair has said, "Well, how did you come to Villa Park?" It's well, Tony Barton. How did you, Tony Barton? Tony Barton yeah. was so instrumental in the development because behind that manager, that manager needs a team and Saunders got a great team. And when you look at the 80s team that went on and won the European, the league and the European Cup, that 70s team, he built that in the image of the 70s team, didn't he? Where you, he did. you could look at Gray and, uh, and Little and then you could look at Shaw and with Either one could play with the other. You know, for instance, Peter With could have played with Brian Little, and, and Peter was brought in really to play with That's Brian. Right. He had but, that problem as well with injuries, didn't he? So what yeah. he done was quite remarkable. Andy Gray, he was, you know, he, I know he wasn't quite the, he wasn't in the same physique and the same mould as Peter With, but Andy put himself about. And he, I think he was five foot ten, but bloody hell, he could he could jump. Yeah, he could. He could jump. He, he, the goals he scored with his head were no one's business. Mm. And Brian fed off him. You had John Dean that was prolific at scoring. They moved on. And then it, Peter With was the target man, much as Andy Lockhead had been back in the 70s. And then you had a young Gary Shaw feeding off Peter. Yeah. So it was a progression. And had Alex Cropley not got injured, Alex Cropley would have carried on to be in the team that won the title. Yeah, he got injured. Des Bremner was his his replacement, a yeah. very, very similar middle-of-the-park player. Mm. 
And Des Bremner, he never, he never really got the credit or the plaudits that the bloke deserved. He was never going to be a match winner. He wasn't blonde-haired and, you know, he wasn't like a, a, Gary, a Gary Shaw pin-up type thing where Gary would get 10 out of 10 some weeks and he might go down a bit. Whereas with Des Bremner, he was a, he was a constant. He'd have been a number eight, eight out of 10 every game of the season. Never put a foot wrong, never sort of caught the eye, but he did a job, you know? Absolutely. He was a steady Eddie. He was Mr. Consistency, Mr. Reliability. Exactly. And, and, and as you say, I mean, another player that they got from Scotland, there was a big Scottish contingent during the yeah. 70s and the 80s, wasn't there? And Andy, That's right. I remember doing an interview with Andy, a podcast with Andy, and he said, Ron hadn't seen me play football. Andy didn't even know where Aston Villa was. But, no, that's know, right. He he come down there, and I think the first taste of a, uh, Aston Villa and Villa Park was when um, Villa Darby. put Birmingham City to the sword, and Brian that's scored right. the winning goal, wasn't it? He? he was there on the bench and thought, "Blimey!" And he was in the and he was in the dugout, like you said. He wanted a beast of it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And he's like, blimey. I mean, this is a big club. Yeah. I think at Dundee United, where he previously played, I think they used to get probably 12, 15, 18,000 maximum. This was a different ball game for Andy Of course Craig. it was. What I, what I would say in Ron's defence, you know, and you know, I'm waxing lyrical about Tony Barton for bringing all these players in, yeah. but what you've got to think of, when Tony went up to Dunfermline and watched Alan Evans, Alan was a forward. Yeah, he was. And when Kenny Swain came down to Villa Park, Another. Kenny was a forward. Yeah, he was a, like a, a right-sided, like your old outside right. Yeah. Your number seven. Mm. And then Gary Williams, he started off as a centre-half initially. Yeah. And then he found these places and he, he changed them around. He, he took Dennis, he took, he took Alan Evans from a centre-forward role, stuck him alongside a fellow Scott Ken McNaught. And wow. One of the best, one of the best half-back pairings you would see until Paul McGrath come on the scene. But again, you know, further down the line, and then Kenny Swain. But you know, again, Kenny was uh, Kenny was an attacking fullback, and Kenny told me once that Ron Saunders had said to him, "I want you to defend on their 18-yard line," and that just speaks volumes. Yeah. But he didn't want him to. He did not want his side defending deep. He wanted them to be on the offensive all the time. Absolutely. And that, that was the mark of Saunders. Absolutely. But when you'd identified the central defensive partnership there, uh, the, the the team before it, you'd got an overlapping right full-back in, in John Gidman, hadn't you? you well, know, that's right. We, Kenny, Kenny Swain basically took the place of Gidman. Exactly, yeah. And then yeah. you look at Chris Nicholl and McNaught took the place of Nicholl. Alan Evans and, took the place of Leighton Phillips. You know, that's so right. all of these players, he, he, he identified the, the players to replace and brought them in. And the transition was, was almost seamless, wasn't it? Yeah, and let's it, not it, forget, in the 70s, Dixie Dean, because Dixie was a great forward who scored phenomenal. a lot of goals, didn't he, in that one season? That's, that's right. That's right. He, uh, yeah, he was he was very unfortunate, Dixie, because he was he was sort of pushed out to West Bromwich Albion. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Saunders, you know, he, he swapped players like for like. You know, I never, I never thought John Gidman would be replaced, but he was. Yeah. And... 
I've actually read Dennis's book, The Full Morty. Absolutely, it's a riveting read. I actually thought, you know, through my conversations with Dennis, he's he's put the forward down for this 80s book. He's been one of seven players interviewed for this 80s book. Uh, you know, when I say interviewed, you know, there's like a four or five page spread on seven players. Yeah. Dennis was gracious enough to be one of those. And when he when he talks, you listen, and everything he says just makes sense. And he gives you such a beautiful, wonderful insight into the workings of that team that was so achieving, you know? You can certainly see why Dennis was the captain, because he's a great talker, great inspiration, oh, a great absolutely, leader. Absolutely brilliant bloke. Even, you know, I'll stand and talk in his I'll stand and, and talk to him, and you know that you're in the presence of someone special. You just do. Absolutely. You, you was, can't. You can't not be. Who was the other players that you interviewed for uh, your Aston Villa? Um, your big. It's called the big Aston Villa book of the eighties. So it, it just sits alongside the seventies book, doesn't it? Yeah. That's right. Well, we've been really, really fortunate with the people that we've got on board. Gary Thompson. Bearing in mind these interviews took place probably two years ago. Gary Thompson, who, wow, I remember I remember watching him in that 87 to 88 season when Graham Taylor got us up. Yeah. And the Villa fans used to sing Bruno. You know, he was built like the yeah, proverbial. Again, uh, Coventry, didn't he? Yeah, he was absolutely phenomenal. Well, he, he, well, he did play for Coventry. He came to us from Sheffield Wednesday. Oh, right, OK. Yeah, he was playing for Sheffield Wednesday the year we get got relegated, his boss was Howard Wilkinson. Got you. And as he come off the pitch, Ron Wiley, you know, another Villa legend, had said to Tomo, would you like to come to Villa Park? And Gary said, I'd walk there to come to Villa. Yeah. Howard Wilkinson saw him talking to the enemy and he, <laughs> he cussed him. <laughs> but uh, Gary Thompson, he, he gave us a really, really lovely in-depth interview. And yet, You've got to remember, he was in the process, like Dennis, of doing his own book. You know, it's yeah. uh, Don't Believe a Word. I've got a copy of that. I've, I haven't had time to, to go through it as in-depth as I want to because I've got my own stuff going on. But Gary says it. He tells it exactly as it is, you know, warts and all. And he's a, he was a phenomenal player. Nobody can forget those two goals he scored at Birmingham City that when we beat them 2-1 on the way to coming up with Taylor. He scored a lot of goals for us that year, Gary Thompson. He was one of them. Dennis Mortimer was another one of the seven, as mentioned. I got Nigel Spink involved. He he tells a he tells a lovely story. I wasn't aware that he played for West Ham as a as a kid and he let a chunk of goals in it was either Martin Chivers or Jimmy I think it was Martin Chivers scored four past him and he was called into the West Ham office and the hierarchy there with John Lyle and Ron Greenwood and he basically told him not to give him his job on the building site and yet look what he aspired to you know he's done something that West Ham have never done they haven't won the European Cup so Nigel was one Kevin Gage the, you know, he started off at Wimbledon, Kevin, fantastic player for us. He started as a right back, then he was a he was a probing midfield player, he weighed in with goals. 
proper no nonsense. Well, never mind no nonsense. I think I think Gagey was a bit of a fair player. I remember him scoring a couple when Norwich City were actually top of the table. We beat Norwich three yeah. one, and Kevin Gage scored two of the goals, and he was he was on fire that season. Very very reliable player. We have Mark Burke. Mark didn't make a great deal of appearances for us, but uh, he did a job for us when he was called upon. Unfortunately, he followed. He followed. There was like an exodus from Villa Park that went to Ayrson Park, Middlesbrough. Yeah. Bruce Rioch was the manager up there. They got the likes of the goalkeeper uh, Kevin Paul. They got Paul Kerr. Mark Burke went up there. There's there's a few more went up. I can't remember offhand who they were. But Mark's another one that was interviewed. And, you know, he might not have played as many games or as, was as prominent as the lads we've mentioned, but he still played a role. Then we have, we have Andy Gray, the lad that came from Crystal Palace, not the Scottish one. Yeah. Andy, Andy was a fantastic player. Uh, I saw him get sent off in a couple of games, but he wore his heart on his sleeve, Andy. And I've been talking to him recently, funny enough. Um, back in the day when I lived in the North East, there were some games I just could not get tickets for, one being looting away, you know, and it was members only. Yeah. And Andy Gray used to... I caught him the one day, but Middlesbrough coming, up, get, coming out the, the ground at Middlesbrough after a three-all draw... And I was asking a few players if he could help us get a ticket for Luton. And Andy said, yeah, I'll get you one. And I said, you know, you're not pulling me chain because it's a long way to go down to Luton from the northeast. And he said, no, I'll, I'll have a ticket. And he did. And uh, he helped us get tickets for that famous Crew Alexander game when we were trailing 2-0 at half time. I was in the seats for that through tickets that Andy got me. Yeah. I was ending up sitting next to this young girl who turned out to be David Platt's future wife. At half time, I went round the back of that stand just to stretch my legs, and I actually listened. I could hear through this glass. I could hear Graham Taylor reading the players the riot act, and I didn't actually think Graham Taylor swore till then. And you know, sort of wow. <laughs> so yeah, and then the last player that we've got for this book, and I I, I don't know how to this day how he why he, how I managed to get him to agree. But I actually interviewed David Platt Probably over bird. <laughs> quite a few hours. Well, funny enough, I told him the story when when I was interviewing him last year on the phone. I told him this story about how I'd been sat next to this this girl, Rachel. And she said to me, she says, oh, how is David Platt doing? I said, oh, he's, he's playing brilliant. I said, he, he scored four goals against Ipswich in a, in a cup match a few weeks ago. And she says, yes, I've got the match ball. And I turned to my mate and... There was a few expletives among it, but I basically said I wouldn't be giving my girlfriend the match ball. <laughs> and after that, she didn't speak to me. <laughs> and I reminded David of that. He says, when he gets off the phone, he's going to go and mention this to her. <laughs> but David, you know, the superstar that he was, the story that he tells me, it was... It was it was quite surreal actually because he's telling me how he'd come down to Villa from Crew Alexander. He'd he'd gladly left Old Trafford because he wasn't getting first team time. He comes to Villa, finds himself in the reserves. He's not even training 
with the first team and he's he's going back to a hotel, he's sitting there watching four walls thinking, I've made a mistake here, I've taken a backwards I've taken a backward turn because I am no longer a first team player. And you think, you know, he's telling you this and then you you know, straight away you think of David Platt, you think of that, that wonderful goal he scored against Belgium. Oh, yes. And then this same lad's telling you how he thought he made a mistake because mm. he'd come to Aston Villa. It's and it's like, wow. It is crazy, um, isn't it? The way that the players have had times in the career where they just thought, wow, what am I doing? But then, yeah. you know, the way that that they they progress and and the uh, and and their their path, if you like, uh, is ju- opens up for them, and they just turn into this magnificent player. Yeah. And what a player he was at Villa Park, wasn't he, Plato? Well, I I was talking to him on the phone, and I and I did say we the name Gordon Cowens came up, and David Platt said oh, honestly he absolutely loves Sid. Yeah, and it's the first time. I've ever, ever given a player's number over without asking their permission. But after I got off the phone to David, yeah. David was aware that Sid's got a few problems yes. yeah. where his memory's concerned. Mm-hmm. And I phoned Sid and I said, I've just been having a wonderful conversation with Platty. Here's his number. Give him a ring, Sid. And he did. Yeah, great. And, and that would have helped him enormously. And the the love that they have for each other, without that sounding weird, yeah. David mm. would say to he, he mentioned in one it's mentioned in the book, so I don't want to go too deep. Yeah. But when we were playing into Milan at home, David scored the second goal. Kent Nielsen scored an absolute thunderbolt. The second one, David Platt, as soon as the ball was pushed to Cascarino, Platt made his run. He said I knew Cascarino wouldn't find me, he says, but I knew Cascarino would just push the ball short to Sid Cowens. Yeah. And he says, it doesn't matter where I'm at, he says, Sid will find me, whether he's, whether it's with his left foot or his right foot, he will put that ball exactly where he knows I need it. And lo and behold, he does. Sid's, uh, but both of Sid's feet, you know, it was like a wand what he could do with that ball. Absolutely. Absolutely. And him, Sid and Platt, you know, uh, they must be two of the closest players to being classed as world class that I've had the fortune to watch at the Villa. The only other one, the only player I would actually put above those in my 50 years watching them would be Paul McGrath. Yeah. He was just... I, I, I can't even... I can't even put words in that he was just out of this world, Paul McGrath. And when I say world-class, Paul, what I mean is I think that I think Paul McGrath would have walked into any club side in the world at that time on his form. Absolutely. I remember talking to Big Ron and uh, when they used to play Manchester United, used to play against Liverpool, uh, Rushy never scored against Man United. And Paul McGrath in his unassuming manner used to say, Thank you very much, Mr. Rush. Thank you very much, Mr. Rush. <laughs> again, you really used to piss me and rush off that, did. Yeah. But that was Paul McGrath. What a player. Yeah. I can see a 90s book on the uh, on the horizon. But we must talk finally about Barton's Army. Different because the 80s, 70s and the 80s, 
match reports, talking to players. It's got everything about Aston Villa of the 70s and the 80s. Barton's Army is pretty much an account of the supporters, isn't it? I was just looking through. Totally, totally different concept, Paul. Richard Sydenham. He's, he's in here, I've noticed, and Terry Whelan's in there. So a few of my Facebook friends uh, are yeah. in there. There's some wonderful pictures of Villa supporters um, lying down in a, in, in, in a state of, um, well, worse for wear, shall we say. <laughs> but yeah. there's some, some big accounts, and some of them, Keith Foreman here, I'm, I'm looking here on page uh, 212, probably just a couple of paragraphs. So you've had so many, and some have got a lot to say, and, and some haven't oh, yeah. got quite a lot to say, but all of them in this wonderful book, and, and great accounts of their memories yeah. of... Uh, They're so diverse, every one of them. I'll be honest with you, it was, it was Dave Lane's idea, this. Yeah. He, he knew I went to the final. He knew I missed a... I spent a whole year at Agricultural College living in on a farm management course. And and I took the time off at the very end to go to Rotterdam to watch the Villa in that final. Yeah. And I wasn't allowed to sit my exams that I missed through going to Rotterdam. Blimey. And the off. principal there, he he really wasn't impressed. But he wasn't... He wasn't a football fan. He liked horses. And I actually said to him as I came out the office, he, he sort of berated me like a child. And I said, it's not my fault. I said, you're only interested in things that eat hay and fat. And it didn't go down very well. <laughs> but I never went back anyway, so it didn't make a great deal of difference. I, I but, love uh, I love the colour, sorry to butt in there, but I love the, the, the cover. It's a play on Dad's Army, isn't it? Martin's yeah. Army, it's fantastic. Well, it's I can't take the credit for that. It was it was David David Lane's it was David Lane's idea. Yeah, brilliant. The cover was his idea. All I did, I put my words in it, my journey through all the only even though I only went to the final, I was telling my story of what I was doing and where I was at through all the rounds because I was as big an anorak then as I am now, unfortunately. And the nice thing about this was when Dave suggested it, I wasn't really that keen, to be honest. I was a bit lukewarm because I know somebody who did a book. Uh, he basically got all the fans' memories and stuck them in a book, but he didn't edit them. He didn't change any grammatical errors, so he made a lot of people look a bit stupid. Yeah, got yeah. And that's what was in my mind, and I thought, no, I'm not going down this route. Mm. And Dave Lane said, look, you know, lots of people know you. You know loads of people. Just put it out there. I fired, I fired the idea off to a dozen people. They all come back saying how fantastic it was. And in it was born. And it, I'll tell you what, it gathered pace. It, it, gathered, it gathered quicker than what Tony Morley could move. And that was it fast. was mad. I'm looking through Graham Denton as well, who wrote the book about Ron Saunders. Um, yeah. He's got a, a an account in there, hasn't yes. he? Yes. We've got some... We've actually got Dean... We've got Dean Smith, yes. our old leader. I noticed that. Turnstiles you know? got, a, got a piece in there as well, hasn't yeah. he? I'll tell you what. Can you remember the lad who wrote uh, We're All Going to Rotterdam? You know that 1982 ditty that uh, Mervyn King used on Desert Island Discs? Yeah. Well, that Doug, that same Doug O'Brien, he sent pieces, and I'll tell you what, 
I'm not an academic. I I write as a as somebody who's totally in love with Aston Villa. Yeah. Doug O'Brien, he loves the Villa no less than me. But the bloke, he is just a, an encyclopedia of history, of geography, his pieces. He's if you did a word count, he's probably got more words in that book than I have. But I couldn't leave any out. I just couldn't leave any out. Fantastic. And Peter Fincher was, as well has got a piece, and Rick Barley. Again, they're members of, uh, of our Facebook groups, etc., etc. Yeah. Um, well, I was told I was told the story of a lad called Lawrence Diggins. Okay. They went to they went to the they went to Berlin in the in the second round. After, just after we'd beaten Valor seven nil on aggregate, we found ourselves going to uh, the other side of the yeah, the, the wall. Yeah. And they got to checkpoint Charlie. This coach load of Villa players, the uh, Villa fans, sorry. And this one lad, they all had to fill in, they all had to fill in forms on this coach. And L- Lawrence had put place of birth, hospital, and this armed <laughs> guard had retrieved all these visa cards, took them off the coach, come back on, and he's he's sort of getting a bit animated, saying, you know, this isn't what we mean. And at that at that point, the bus driver put his head down on his arms and went, FNL, we're going to be here for hours. And they were. <laughs> and then, so I had a few people tell me about this Lawrence Diggins and how they'd christened him hospital. Yes, I'm, I'm on that page, 222 wow. Lawrence Hospital Diggins. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the one night I got a phone call and this lad said, can I speak to Colin? And I said, it, this was like 11 o'clock and I thought, who's phoning me at this time? And it was this Lawrence Diggins. And as soon as he said his name, Lawrence, I went, Bloody hell, hospital. <laughs> and he started laughing. He says, he says, I haven't heard that for 40 years. <laughs> and and he told me the story. And, of course, we had to have him in. Uh, Dick Edwards, the old Villa centre-half, who was there, you know, in the Doherty's era. Yeah. Dick Edwards, the lad who played the guitar. Yeah. He was actually playing a gig in Brussels. <laughs> and five or six reporters came in to cover the Villa game. And this was the final. They'd, they'd stopped in Belgium on the way through to Holland. They recognised Dick Edwards doing this gig with his former Torquay teammate, Bruce Stuckey. They got talking and said, come to our hotel and we'll get you tickets for the final. So Dick Edwards, who was an absolute rock in defence for the Villa in his time, he, uh, he went to the final. John Holder, who... You know, you'll, that's a name that you'll recognise. He, he runs a Lions club now. I sometimes go to games with John now. Yeah. John John was running Cheltenham Lions back in the day. Uh, a friend of his, Alan Brookfield, went with him. And John's youngest uh, youngest brother, uh, I think he was 16-year-old or 15-year-old. His name's Martin. He, uh, he couldn't go. So John, I don't know how old John was at the time, but John lent his younger brother the money to go to the final and you think, wow, you know, yeah. if John hadn't have done that, that lad wouldn't have missed out on, to me, and to all these lads, that, you know, who've got claret and blue eyes, this was bigger than man walking on the moon. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What a wonderful achievement. Brilliantly put in this. And, and, and it isn't the case of they just do one account extract. Hospitals put quite a few in there. Oh, yeah, all, yeah, they're all, the boys are all across it, yeah. Paul Harvey, yeah. you know, he's a he's a he's a friend. 
Yeah. Paul Harvey went to Valor to the away game. Yeah. There was as he's walking into the ground, there's there's two two packages of newspapers. And and he took one and put it back on the bus. And his wife, Heather, was saying that uh, he had he basically had two hundred programmes and I think he's still selling them to this day. <laughs> And that's what I love. It, it's an account of the various games, rounds, and the fans' memories of each and every round, including yeah. the final, isn't it? It's yeah, of absolutely I, I, lad, I know, brilliant. Alan Wilson, great lad. He actually got one of Kenny Swain's socks. All right, left or right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He got he got one of Kenny Swain's socks and uh, Tony Parton. A really, really good friend of mine, Tony Parton. He's uh, he's not in the best of health at the minute. Oh dear, yeah. He he lives in America. He's had a few he's had a few surgeries on his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh Tony's father, Reg, he used to be in charge of the press box at Villa Park in the nineteen sixties. Yeah. So Tony was a the, the surname Parton was a name that was recognisable to me from years and years ago. Now I got to meet Tony when I was doing the. I was doing the research for Encounters of the Third Kind and I was able to go and interview our reserve team coach from the third division days, a gentleman by the name of Leo Crowther. Right. Lovely bloke. He was he was the reserve team coach when Vic Crow and Ron Wiley looked after first team affairs, you know? Yeah. And then you had Frank Upton, who was like the fourth in the in the pyramid. And it was him that got the Villa to FA Youth Cup winners against Liverpool in 72. Absolutely. And he changed Brian Little's position to an inside forward. That's right. But, but Leo, mm. uh, I went to interview Leo. He had a beautiful house in these grounds. And the, the main house, it was like something that you would, you know, <laughs> you need a lottery up to get something like that. And Leo took me into this house. I didn't know who lived it. Well, he said it was his daughter's house. Right. I didn't know that his daughter Maureen had married this Tony Parton. Very, very successful bloke. Right. But I'm I'm in the house. Leo's shown me all these wonderful one off things of Aston Villa in this house. And then this bloke appeared and he's like he's he didn't say it, but he's probably thinking, What the hell's this? <laughs> and and I felt a bit I felt a bit uncomfortable and I'm thinking he's gonna take Leo's head off here. And uh I witted something about I write books on Aston Villa or something lame and yeah. but me and Tony became great friends and he's one of very, very few people. He's actually got every single bound volume of Aston Villa. And I don't think there's many people on this planet that have them. Unbelievable accounts and finally chapter six, the Super Cup. So it's not just winning the European Cup and accounts of winning the European Cup. It's uh, there's a chapter of when Aston Villa won the Super Cup, and there's a lovely picture in there of Tony Barton celebrating with Villa coach and sadly no longer with us, uh, yeah. Roy, Roy McLaren. So uh, right. rest in peace to Roy, another halt ender yeah. in the sky, sir. Well, that that only went in because I'd actually I was working on a farm and I was actually trying to sell my Ford Capri to finance going to Tokyo because. No way on earth did I want to miss out on watching Aston Villa become the best club side in the world. Yes. 
Unfortunately, they didn't do it, and unfortunately, I didn't sell my car. <laughs> you know, nowadays, a Capri would be called a classic. Believe me, it wasn't a classic in them <laughs> days. And I couldn't sell it in time. Uh, I did have to have, I had to have surgery on an accident that I sustained on the farm. So I probably wouldn't have been able to travel to Tokyo anyway. I did make do with going to see the Villa. The Villa played Arsenal on the Tuesday night. The game brought forward from the Saturday with the Villa going to Tokyo. Yeah. And what I did find out, the Villa were actually paid £40,000 for taking part in the World Club Championships. Okay. It's not a lot when you think about no. it, when you think what these players yeah. are on now. Now, with the Villa playing Arsenal on the Tuesday night, Arsenal had said to Aston Villa, if we played you on the Saturday, we'd get 25,000. Yeah. So anything under 25,000, yeah. you're going to compensate for to us. Mm. Now, the crowd was 17,000 something, and it actually cost the Villa 20,000 pounds for having that did, game played was on the grand. Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. So is. you got 20 grand for going to Tokyo instead of 40. <laughs> and I think the players shared some of that out. Unbelievable. Some brilliant encounters there. And uh, yeah. the Villa Roll of Honour, and just before that on page 252, a wonderful picture. Book author Colin Abbott with Dennis Mortimer at Villa Park and the picture yes. there of Dennis and Tony. And uh, what a brilliant book. You must be so very proud of yourself, Cole, and your wonderful football club. And we will meet up again and uh, do another uh, podcast talking about your books going forward. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honour. Thanks, Paul. Uh, talking about your wonderful books, Barton's Army and the Aston Villa, the big book of the uh, 80s alongside the 70s and the first 150 years. You and David Lane, a match made in heaven, sir. Thank you very much. And Thanks very much, Paul. Sorry for not giving you time to talk. God Take bless. care, Paul. Thanks, pal. Bye for now. Ta-da. Bye-bye. 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 Bye